Okay, so I wanted to find out what was going on in Afghanistan, but I didn't want the news anchor version. I wanted the human-to-human version. Well, I was lucky to talk to a counterintelligence agent for the U.S. Army who was stationed in Afghanistan a few months after 9-11 incident. His name, Ramon Garcia. Now, Ramon was also deployed uh, in Afghanistan several times throughout the early 2000s. Ramon was part of the Human Intel Division. This allowed him access to Afghan locals, officials, including contact with ex-Taliban commanders. Now, Mr. Garcia was very open and had a great perspective and insight to what was going on in Afghanistan at that time and was very candid and open about not only just Afghanistan, but just war in general and the PTSD experience. Check him out. All right. I have my friend Ramon. Ramon. <laughs> Ramon. <laughs> Sorry. I can't help it. Every time I hear that name, Ramon, I want to roll my R's just because right I like how that sounds. Anyway, sorry. You'd be uh, one of the few in California that can actually do that. <laughs> <laughs> so we have here, uh, tell us your full name, Ramon Garcia, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Ramon Garcia. Cool. You were telling me before we started rolling that that's like people think that's a strong name. <laughs> <laughs> right uh, or like if i'm in the uh when i have to give that name for to wait on my coffee it's uh it always takes about two or three times them asking me uh to say it once more and then spell it out for them you would think though in california there's a lot of um spanish people but exactly. yeah, a white coffee place <laughs> hey, I, I like paying double digits for my latte so yeah <laughs> so you you grew up in you said in miami that's correct yeah in, okay. in miami florida uh, so Ramon Garcia out there, you know, it's not as exotic as it is here in California. Out there, it's the equivalent of Jason Smith. Very common name. I probably had in every class uh, right, right. growing up through elementary. There were probably other another two Ramon Garcias. So they're like Ramon Garcia. And you're like, which one? Right. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks for doing this, by the way. The, of course. Tell us about you were in the armed services, right? That's correct. Yeah. So I, was in the, I was in the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of different, I would say, from what people typically imagine. Uh, what I get a lot is I, I can't even fathom you or imagine you ever being in the U.S. Army. But um, why is that? Why are you? Uh, too laid back. Uh, too laid oh. back, and <laughs> the stereotype of what an army guy is like. And I guess I don't uh, fit that mold. Yeah. But uh, what's cool about it was. I was in counter intelligence. I uh, went through the agent course uh, in Arizona at Fort Huachuca. So that's, I guess, that's why I get that a lot. It, it was just it offered you this opportunity uh, to think outside of the box and always present an alternative option or way of thinking uh, to accomplish the mission. I guess that's why it's counter intelligence, but not counter to intelligence. <laughs> or you never know. Yeah, it's <laughs> oxymoron or whatever it right, is. Right. right. Yeah. Wow. Well, I don't know if I, I completely understand what counterintelligence entails. Yeah. So um, I was a little bit different as in basically we were human intel. That's the role I fell into because uh, counterintelligence is typically a lot of report writing uh, and in plain clothes observing any threats mm. to like national security. 
Uh, and just a lot of report writing on that. Um, I was more fell into the human intelligence role, which was more of uh, speaking with the locals and uh, collecting intelligence. Yes, a lot of interaction. And boots so, on the ground kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I watch a lot of TV. That's why I learn all these. <laughs> right on. Like, <laughs> the first time in Afghanistan, it was uh, called Counterpolit proliferation that was uh my main role there at least the first mm -hmm. time and that was kind of proliferation is basically identifying and destruction of weapons well, no that's why i wanted to talk to you because you we hear we're hearing a lot about afghanistan um but i wanted to talk to someone who's who had actually been there so i can get like the human <laughs> human and intel <laughs> on right. it. Yeah. and just to find out like from the horse's mouth not not to cheer a horse, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, but to hear uh, from someone, your take on it, what was it like being there and stuff like that? Well, I guess it's it was a place that nobody could really prepare us for. Um, as far as, you know, there were some, some old timers back in when we were getting set to go back in 2001 mm -hmm. that had experience in the Gulf War, um, you know, in early to mid uh, 90s. but you know, that was Iraq. Um, right. And it, it was a different kind of a role. It's more of an Air Force taking the lead uh, type of situation. Right. So there was a lot of uh, misconceptions they were telling us, like, uh, do not present your left hand. Um, you so, went with your left hand. Yeah. And yeah. so none of that was absolutely true at all. In fact, uh, the typical Pashtun greeting is you embrace with the left hand while mm -hmm. you have your right hand over your heart. Um, um, so it was outdated intel when you yeah yeah just uh, just all these general urban misconceptions <laughs> they had yeah um yeah just weren't true um mm. but but uh what you did see was it was very the warrior culture is embedded and ingrained um i, I mean i think they've known nothing but war i mean dating back to ottoman empire exactly yeah um so it was really so, easy to connect in a way uh, with them. Just uh, what eventually became the Afghan National Army, uh, the AMF or the Afghan militia, mm -hmm. that, that and ex-Taliban commanders, that's who we were uh, connecting with. And just right off the bat, it's just uh, you're interested in, hey, if I'll let you fire this uh, RPG if you let me hold and fire your M4 carbine rifle and uh there's just that easy way Jeez. to make a connection in that way yeah that's kind of cool I, I shoot your gun you shoot mine kind of thing right that was always just kind of a default <laughs> like no every time you met with one wow i mean when i grew up i was like hey can i ride your bike this is like a whole different like, same thing i would say yeah but with guns and stuff as you're saying this i realized so you you were there on like the the beginning of when I wouldn't say I wouldn't say the beginning because um, I didn't go until 2002. Um, we so were there were there some when? boots on the ground. There were boots on the ground initially, uh, not too long after 9/11 uh, to end 2001. I, okay. I went more towards the beginning of 2002. Right. Okay, but still, it's like early in the game. Like uh, yeah, definitely. Wow. So that's so you get you get to see when the early onslaught of we were just probably setting up the protocol and how to be there and and then the Russians were there first, right? No, oh yeah that's correct that was one of our uh, biggest concerns uh while we were there was uh the russians when their invasion had failed and they were retreating uh they left behind 
uh, at the time, what they were telling us was 10 million unaccounted for landmines. Oh, so uh, in the first fire bases that were being set up, um, we're surrounded by Constance, Constantina wire. Uh, and mm. so something that was very typical at night is getting woken up to uh, foxes being curious and coming close to the wire, but they would set off a landmine. Oh, um, and get blown. It was up. one of those. Yeah, yeah. So it's one of those. Wow. You know, you're you're peeing in water bottles. Um, you're not going too far from your tent or from your vehicle, just because you never know uh, what you can step on out there. Jesus, it's like camping on steroids. Like, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> like next level, Jesus. Um, but so you, 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 the Russians were there. But do you have any idea, like, what's the deal with Afghanistan? Why is it such a hotbed of like everybody's uh, invaded. I think just uh, the way it's strategically placed um, mm. if, if you just look at who surrounds it um, I, I think if, if you ever played the game of risk it's kind of very difficult to hold even in the game but if you do hold it it just kind of gives you an outlet you know east and west uh, yeah. to, so strategically placed yes. mm, so geographically it's like in this place where you're connected to multiple continents that's great yeah wow so when so when you guys showed up i mean you were saying they were warlike and they were you used you, you mentioned that they were easy to connect to which is kind of interesting considered that they were um people they just were dealing with the russians like a, a superpower that was kind of invaded them the biggest the biggest thing i think that uh made it easy for us as well was um because now the uh, Taliban had had fled uh, to Pakistan mm. and to other surrounding countries uh, by the end of 2001, uh, they had a lot more freedoms afforded to them. They were able to throw parties, uh, have bands, you know, with primitive instruments, but they were able to create art again, even have comedians uh, at these parties where they had cookouts. And so they would invite us to all of them. Uh, and they told us it was just you know, they se- they could celebrate in this way uh, because we were there and we had, uh, and the Taliban had fled. And so they saw us as the only reason they can do those things. So that's part of the reason of why it was so easy um, to connect with them. So you like saviors. Yeah, I guess in a way, but it, it was just that we afford, you know, we would meet guys dancing uh, and they would show us, you know, they had missing toes that the Taliban had Ouch. chopped off because they were dancing to music. It was just, Western culture and art was unacceptable under Is it because they were bad dancers or that you're just not supposed to dance at all? Well, I, I would say, yes, they were very bad dancers. <laughs> I actually have some video that can confirm <laughs> that. But no, just in general, the Taliban uh, did not allow for any sort of Western influence, um, right. artistic expression. Right. Wow. So they're, that's really interesting because you're basically that they're not down with the Taliban at all. You know, they're just sort of like for the most part. Right. Mix and match. So a lot of the uh, a lot of our biggest sources were ex-Taliban and Al Qaeda commanders that stayed behind. You know, they were also tribal leaders, mm. um, and so they saw the Taliban had been ousted. And so now, moving forward, the U.S. is going to implement the what we had already implemented was the Karzai Karzai government, uh, and I guess they wanted as much involvement. Uh, in that government as possible. And so a lot of them, as the Taliban had fled, they stayed back or stayed in Afghanistan um, and then, I Um, guess, in a way, became loyal to the U.S. 
so loyal to the winning side. <laughs> like, yes. I'm on the side oh, yeah. that's going to keep me afloat. Exactly. Um, mm. And so one of our biggest things, I mean, right from day one, as we we're on the ground, as you know, as part of counterproliferation, uh, we were telling them like, hey, look, one day the U.S. is going to leave uh, and the Taliban is going to come right back in. So um, what they were assisting us with was uh, finding old Russian munitions, you know, uh, of serious scale, like a uh, 500 pound aircraft bombs that can be dismantled later on uh, to create IEDs. Um, we were working with them to track those down in all the bunker systems that the Taliban had left behind with the intention of coming back in and digging up basically prevent that from happening or take away mm. that from the Taliban before, if the day ever came when the U.S. would leave. Right. So, so we went in there uh, like on a temporary visa kind of thing, like, like hoping uh, to leave kind of one the, day. Um, Yeah. I mean, that was initially as far as uh, initially what we were told as a priority of interest. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was, that, that's kind of the mindset we had. And a lot of these tribal leaders and these ex-Taliban commanders, it, it, the way they were implementing or getting implemented into the new Karzai government of Afghanistan, it seemed like we were forming corporations out of them. Um, what we had told them was like, you better make, make as much money now and implement yourself as much as you can into this government. Because uh, one day... We're going to be gone. Uh, you, yeah, one day we're going to be gone and you need a higher position of power and or to have made enough to where you can relocate uh, to somewhere like Dubai. I don't know. Just I never got the feeling from being in Afghanistan that that's a place you even just wanted to remain in, to tell you the truth. Oh, you mean not you, you mean for the average Afghanistani or just yeah, for, for the average Afghanistani? I mean, mm. I guess they know nothing better, but it's just one of those places, especially as curious as they were about Western culture. It just didn't seem like that is a place where you wanted Stay. to remain if you were, if you were interested in any way in Western culture. Yeah. Right. Right. Wow. I mean, and what about for, for, for us though, how would we end up staying there so long? You think? Cause I don't, that was not the plan. Right. Yeah. Um, so sort of a lot of things thrown around. I mean, obviously, um, after 9-11, there were things uh, very dear to Al-Qaeda that, um, that the coalition wanted dismantled piece by piece until it was ensured that that whole organization was completely dismantled. And I mean, that was in the mindset that was going to take a little bit over a decade. Uh, but I would say when things really started shifting was uh, when the Obama administration first contacted Mullah Omar um, and the Taliban and is he was he the head let, of the to let them know that the, yes he was um yeah and number two uh to who was at the very top of al-qaeda um mm. and so it was just basically giving them an option to open a negotiation uh talks or negotiations which uh fell through with the obama administration but it was the first time in administration had done that since jfk had established the rule that the u.s will not negotiate with terrorists so it was just kind of a new way of thinking moving forward. And then um, I guess not many people know this, but the Trump administration uh, 
officially signed a treaty with the Taliban that created what we are going through today. It, it basically, Trump had ensured that the U.S. would remove all of its forces within 14 months, which uh, we just saw. And it also gave, it made the Taliban the enforcers of Afghanistan, uh, enforcers as far as they are the element that is there to make sure that uh, U.S. elements are never attacked again in the region, and as well as that Afghanistan, that they will protect Afghanistan from becoming a safe haven for terrorism. Wow. So whether you like it or not, uh, the U.S., the Trump administration uh, brought that to fruition. So they sort of struck a deal, so to speak, with the Taliban saying, hey, we're going to pull out, but you better make sure nobody asks with us kind of deal. Correct. Um, to make sure that the terrorist organizations um, no longer have training facilities in Afghanistan and that they can ever make their way out of Afghanistan to attack the U.S. soil ever again. And a lot of this was done on faith. But, mm. yep, you can Google this. This is, I don't, I don't know why not too many yes. Americans are aware of this. But, yeah, that, that is an official deal struck by Trump. He even would tweet about it. It's not carried a lot in the news. I mean, it just maybe little murmurings of it, but not nothing. I would assume so, because I was just surprised, yeah. uh, you know, that's world politics and not mm. too many people were aware it's of that. Interesting. Right. To include that the Taliban is no longer a terrorist organization. Uh, they were moved from that list by the uh, State Department as well as the FTO. So the U.S. does not recognize the Taliban as a terrorist organization any longer. Wow. That's interesting. What about Al-Qaeda? Al-Qaeda, no, no, that's uh, so that's a different story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, okay, they're still cool. on that they're list. Yeah. They're still on the wanted list. So if on you the... pull up those those forms, yeah, they are definitely recognized as a terrorist organization. Personas non grata. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's crazy. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it, it's just one of the nobody can agree on anything, I feel yeah. like, in regards to Afghanistan. When you uh, when you when you're doing intel in a place like that, what what exactly does your job entail? What do you what do you have to do that when you get to Afghanistan and you said you, you kept mentioning tribes? <laughs> so do you connect to these tribes? Do you say, hey, I'm Ramon. Yeah. You know, nice to meet you. Right. Right. Absolutely. So um, what helps a lot is uh, fitting into the culture. Um, you know, uh, before deployment, uh, we already begin growing out our beards uh, just so that we arrive cognizant of what their culture entails um, mm. and that we present an understanding of it as well. Mm. Um, uh, introducing ourselves, uh, kind of mapping out the areas and who the personalities are. Um, and then on the higher scale, it would be um, looking at a tribe itself. And uh, let's say if uh, Western influence and or State Department type entities want to build a dam on a tribe's land, we would just establish the initial um, connection with the tribal elders, uh, mm. see what their demands are moving forward into the future. Um, let's say to even build an, electro, an electric company uh, that would provide a certain amount of electricity uh, throughout one particular region. Um, it just... We go back with reports uh, based on what the tribal elders' demands were. Um, 
mm. you know, how, how much of a kickback they would get when their land is used by the newly established Afghan government um, to provide this power throughout the region, as well as how many employees at this power plant would be from that specific tribe as well. Wow. Right. Ah, it sounds so corporate. <laughs> oh yeah it, it's very corporate um and that was the biggest change i saw throughout afghanistan from the first time i was there to the last time i was there um i would say a lot of these tribes caught on uh, to this corporate structure and uh, it just seemed like they were mm. forming corporations out of their tribes uh to better implement themselves into the uh government of afghanistan yeah similar to similar to like uh i guess like uh bahrain the uh, or United Emirates, where all the when they started getting oil, they had to deal with all the different tribes, right? Different there families, Emiratis, and exactly. Huh. So, what about all these rumors about like Halberton pipeline and all that stuff going through, <laughs> you know, Afghanistan? Yeah, yeah, there was a major pipeline that went right through um, Afghanistan, and to tell you the truth, that's one of the things. Um, was kind of in the background for me, um, whether what resource, I mean, Afghanistan has a plethora of spices as well as, um, opium. Well, well, opium <laughs> as well. No. Yeah. Um, you know, that to, when it came down to, uh, my role there in my, uh, window mm. that to me fell on the politics side that I kind of ignored or wasn't my lane. Um, one of the things I always wondered about was you had all these tribes that were growing on their land, just massive amounts of poppy. And the Taliban would still come back in and abduct children before the harvest season. And it would force these tribes on their land to grow a certain amount of poppy. Well, just to make um, and, it clear, uh, poppy, yeah. you mean, uh, is that the word for the heroin uh, seed? plant yes What's yes pot? not like yeah, dominicans um, use it poppy hey poppy hey poppy oh not no that. absolutely yeah. not that <laughs> no. right. yeah no. although they would they would basically essentially create <laughs> a certain amount of kilos that would essentially go to latin america um to wow. create uh the heroin so damn the the taliban would abduct children from these tribes wow. uh, and it would come back after the harvest and they would get the children back if they provided the Taliban with the certain amount of kilos they had requested. Um, wait, wait, wait. Let me see if I get this straight. So you're yeah. saying that we're aware of it, uh, the U.S. as far as like, we just don't, it ain't our business or something? Is that how we? Yeah, it was one of those, you know, it's uh, their way of life, especially tell. the hash. They, they uh, yeah, especially the in that culture, they smoke hash regularly on a daily basis. Right. Uh, so the part of their land as well that was used to grow hash, um, it's just something that it's their way of life. It's been their way of life. And the U S went in with the intentions or the coalition itself went in with the intentions that that would not be eradicated or destroyed. Uh, mm. We wouldn't mess with their way of life and their cultural aspects of their life that way. Money too. is also, isn't there like part of the economy? Right. And I think, uh, especially with the poppy on a global scale, because wow. one of the thoughts we always had was, so they're complaining about the Taliban forcing them to grow this poppy. Well, what if we just secured uh, region by region? We just we just chose um, specific tribes and mm -hmm. secured them. Um, and in that way, if we were to secure them from the Taliban, 
we could just basically eradicate the poppy on their land and then have them grow wheat, which essentially would, you know, and there was a shortage of wheat throughout the entire region. Um, even wheat being exported from India through Pakistan to Afghanistan, it wouldn't make it to Afghanistan because uh, in Pakistan, it would just basically, uh, they wouldn't allow for the export um, mm. out of or transfer from India this percentage that was supposed to go to Afghanistan, it would just stay in Pakistan. So they'd keep uh, it. Essentially confiscated, right. Mm. So Damn. it was always in the back of our minds, well, instead of growing this poppy that essentially does not much for the world besides, you know, uh, the Taliban and maybe some cartels um, oh, in Latin America, America essentially capitalizing on all of this. What if mm. this tribe itself were to just grow wheat? Uh, and provide throughout the region, uh, first of all, their their own country, and then uh, export it throughout the region. It just seemed like a much, it seemed like a really viable plan. Uh, mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't know what the big picture was there. Maybe then it would cause too much turmoil and maybe political unrest in South America. So it's one of those things we saw on the ground, but yeah, we just kind of ignored. So the repercussions of that, because then the the people who were profiting from the poppy in South America, America then it would just, you'd be shifting the problem to another region, is what you're saying? Right. Or who knows what kind of chaos that would oh, create. Um, so yeah, it's one That's of those, uh, we just don't know why poppy was just allowed to remain intact, but it was. And I wonder why them themselves don't say like, eh, screw this poppy, let me just grow wheat. Yeah, um, from what we had seen on the ground, it was just a lot of, uh, it's just the way it had been leading up Mm -hmm. to then. And then uh, the U.S. military was too spread out. Um, So essentially they can secure certain areas, region by region, Mm -hmm. but then uh, the Taliban would move back in through via Pakistan or where they were their safe haven in Pakistan, and then can just for, uh, force another tribe uh, to grow a certain amount during a harvest season. And by the time the U.S. military can shift and then secure that area, that area. yeah, it, it was just, the U.S. military was just spread too thin. By the time they can secure that, that was already a done deal. And then the Taliban would know where to fill in where, uh, where the where U.S. military, not. right. What were the, where they were, the other areas that were left vulnerable, vulnerable. right. Mm. Wow. And so the Taliban is really uh, like a drug cartel, kind of like on the side of amongst, like you mentioned. Uh, Back then, yes. Kidnapping women, uh, sorry, children and stuff like so there is this was just like a tactic to, you know, like a gangster tactic, like I'm going to kidnap your children until you grow that poppy. That's correct. Yeah. And then what we saw, you know, the tribes complained about it. Hey, you know, you haven't offered us or provided us the security. Uh, So it is the amount we have to grow. And then, you know, it it was something like uh, for every 10 or 12 kilos, I don't remember anymore, but for every 10 or 12 kilos they had produced during the harvest, they were allowed to keep one. What are they going to do that as a tribe with those kilos they kept besides uh, get high? And they Mm -hmm. don't have the means to export that at the prices that uh, the South American cartels are going to sell it at. So it really does yeah. essentially does nothing for them. So they don't make money off of their own. They're just Correct. getting high on their right. own supply. Yeah. Yeah. And growing through via intimidation. Yeah. Damn. 
<laughs> way more oh, yeah. complicated it's... than I realized. Mm-hmm. Wow. So how did you feel when you were there? Initially, they really liked the U.S. being there, but then it sounds like as you kept going, it got more and more like you just switching out. You brute. So um, I was really disheartened uh, the last time I went there, uh, which was nearly a decade after I had first initially gone. And it was just, you know, I had seen some of the guys we had set up. Uh, they were now generals in the Afghan special forces. Uh, but what was a trip was everything they had stood for when we first arrived seemed to have disappeared. Like now they were in uniform. Uh, they had lost all of their uh, cultural aspects to include, mm. they were even shaven, not clean shaven, but they were shaven. And, you know, that was a representation in their culture of their manhood and their roots was the big long beards. And, mm. You can see that whole shift from what their culture was to, oh, now it's about money. Yeah. Mm. Now it's about money and basically playing this along with this whole system that's been implemented here. So people, but I mean, everyone could not have gone along with it uh, reluctantly. Some people probably embraced it, right? Oh, sure. Yes, definitely. definitely, I would say they they definitely embraced it. Yeah. Because you said they had a fascination for the West. Yes. a A lot of the... So, hmm, because I mean, and I would understand that as far as if I were a woman, I would way probably be way more fascinated with the West because of all the, uh, well, more rights that come with it, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that's an issue there for sure. Um, Women's rights, they have not had that revolution as of yet. And unfortunately, that is a that can be attributed to the Pashtun way of life throughout that whole region. Um, it's not specific to the Taliban. It's just something, it's, it's just the way of life that has always been there. And so that mm-hmm. revolution needs to come around, but I don't think it's there quite yet. Right. Yeah. Um, but- and one of the biggest issues I had as well, uh, returning there years later was I really had an issue uh, driving through and then seeing like, let's say Wells, and there were still quite a long line of women and children at these wells, uh, filling up a bucket with water to walk miles back to their tribal land uh, to provide this water for their family. It just seemed like with all the communication towers I saw going up uh, and fiber optic being laid down, it's just like, it really seemed corporate. And then I began to really question, well, what are we doing here? And what are we doing for the people? If nearly a decade later, uh, this is still the conditions they are living in. Mm, um, so you're saying that we, we have an oil pipeline, but we don't have a water pipeline for them. That and this uh, communication and um, uh, fiber optic, like internet, um, mm. cellular services that are being laid down. Um, that's for the military though right so Mm -hmm. definitely for the military but then as well as for communications uh, throughout the country Um, Mm -hmm. and it's one of those I had a hard time buying into that Um, and I when I saw that being heavily in place in about 2009 but it kind of all makes a lot of sense now to tell you the truth Um, We've got guys like Elon Musk. So Elon Musk is building a Starlink that is still 
in its infancy stage, but the long-term goal of that is free internet to every person in the world, no matter where they are. Um, and with the rise of uh, the smart, uh, the social and smartphone culture, even in places like Afghanistan, yeah. um, where the children are very interested in Western culture and influence, um, basically what that affords is something that the U.S. military could never uh, enforce and implement in that country. And that is the motto of uh, U.S. intelligence is knowledge is power. And if so, if knowledge is power, mm -hmm. um, by implementing that system, essentially we have enabled um, future generations and children in Afghanistan access uh, to Western culture in a way of them and a way for them to learn what they are interested in yeah. um well the taliban is back in place and if they are to continue to do what they did uh prior to 2001 and that is uh take away the schooling uh mm -hmm. schooling systems and ensure that uh children's children don't have schools uh, that can basically teach them any sort of uh western culture well mm -hmm. essentially that be cannot be to, taken away at this point but yeah it will be hard to uh, enforce that because any kid with a smartphone or can find a some device and still connect to the world right right exactly mm. i mean it doesn't sound like a bad thing but it sounds like a bad thing if everyone can get internet not everyone can get water because i can live more than three days without internet and then i sure. lose it but but, but I, can't, I don't know how long I can live without water. I yeah, essentially, it's supposed to be three days. I mean, they, but they're tough people. They've gotten through. Um, Just saying we could help them. For many years. Yeah, absolutely. Have um, access water better, maybe. I don't know. crazy so there's a lot did you ever feel uh unsafe when you were there with like uh any type of like life threat um you know i i did especially my first time there but um essentially what they would do is you know they had all these old russian munitions uh, as far as rockets were concerned mm -hmm. and everything and they were missing fins they weren't in the best condition and essentially mm -hmm. they were just point and shoot type of thing. Um, so I felt somewhat unsafe. Uh, you know, there were just general attacks, but it wasn't till I got to Iraq. And then it was, that seemed more of a real military. That just seemed, they knew math and engineering that I can never comprehend. Um, and they can triangulate your location and even use satellite and just, know all these advanced maths on how to target you with advanced mm. weaponry um i didn't feel that in afghanistan it was just more of a people with a lot of small arms and right, technical Jay. knowledge to build bombs but not so, in scale that we saw in afghanistan and in, Af in afghanistan it was like a ragtag bunch just running and gunning it right not a lot of science behind it 
And then in Iraq, they say cradle of civilization. Also, they did invent arithmetic. So exactly. <laughs> so, and so, you saw so, that firsthand. Oh, yeah. And we on the rest of because because that's important to know because people in America just think, ah, just a bunch of uh, you know, dumb Arab people or whatever, you know. But it's a very advanced civilization and they're older than Europe. You did, I forgot you did some time in Iraq as well. So there yes. you felt threatened and Oh, absolutely. You, yeah, that was... Yeah. Culturally, were there like uh, similarities that you could connect? Because you that's your job, right? In Intel, you, mm-hmm. there's ways you could kind of, you look for the similarities between the human aspects. You said human intelligence, so the human acts of connecting with these groups, Iraq or Afghanistan. So when we went to Iraq the first time, um, you know, we had just not too long ago we weren't too far removed from afghanistan and so we thought it was going to be the exact same thing we thought they were going to love us um we're going to go in um they're they're going to throw parties for us they're going to embrace us and that was not the case that all it it was just nobody wanted us there um they kind of understood government and what democracy could be and it just seemed like they were not on board whatsoever. Um, and they had they had more of an organized, organized military background. And they did not like the fact that um, we had dismantled it, it seemed like. Mm. Yeah. And they were able to fight back quite well. Um, but it wasn't a complete loss. Uh, eventually, you know, it took quite a lot of time. And there wasn't that instant connection. But over... A period of a long time, uh, we began to see people really become curious of Western culture. And what was blowing their minds is that we can go back uh, to the United States and we would tell them that, no, we do not walk around with guns uh, in the United States. Like, I do not feel threatened going to the grocery store. So there's no purpose mm-hmm. for me to just carry small arms when I go to the grocery store. And um, that kind of blew my mind that that simple thing of just going to the grocery store without um protection without the potential of being seriously maimed or killed uh they just they couldn't believe that was a possibility and that's when we kind of start uh, to see a shift in their mindset Mm. so just so it's just from opening up uh, talks and communicating them getting to hear more stories from you and you from them is what really started to do it huh Right, right. I would say that as well as just that um, that that bond you build. Um, mm. Not only are they on the payroll, but now they see you guys uh, actually taking risks and taking um, some serious risks on your side to ensure that their identity or it, it, you, you, what their their work that they're doing for the coalition isn't made known uh, throughout their neighborhoods, and then mm. you know seeing the u.s is actually there and we have cultural units uh rebuilding schools and establishing soccer teams that that type of thing yeah. mm, wow so you're because you're not leading with a gun you're just leading with um psychology and connection and yeah um the needs of the people first um and unfortunately i mean that isn't uh, the command can have a very different idea, but it's presenting those, the needs of, what are the needs of the people first? Yes. Mm. Wow. So did you, did you have PTSD from being in these places? 
so so my first time in Iraq uh, was Fallujah. Um, we we did a, a small stint in Yosafia, but then the main PIR or our priority and location was Fallujah. And when I came back, yeah, I instantly noticed I was not, yeah, I was pretty messed up just in the sense that on the, the first night back, my aunt and uncle were stationed in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where that's where I was stationed. And so on my first night back, uh, they took me to Ruth Chris's steakhouse. And mm. I thought I felt, I thought everything was normal until I got in that car and we drove to Ruth Chris's steakhouse. And I was staring at every, I was scanning every rooftop as we were riding. Uh, every time we went through an intersection, I just assumed cars weren't going to stop at their red lights and going to ram us. Uh, but that only lasted two days. But yeah, I initially realized, man, I'm uh, not well in the head. But that only lasted two days. What was long lasting uh, in a unit was um, not what people generally think PT PTSD is all about. It was more so myself for about two weeks. I had the, mus the muscle memory or sensations of spiders crawling over me. And that was just a result of, you know, the past seven months going from house to house from abandoned house to abandoned house and just basically essentially just sleeping there. Um, mm. So I had the muscle memory for about two weeks. Some guys complained that for six months uh, they were still feeling insects and whatnot crawling over themselves in the United States when essentially it was nothing there. Um, and then what a lot of guys were complaining about and what was long lasting in myself was uh, driving in the center of the road um, driving that as to avoid IED. So you're driving in the center of the road. Um, and for myself is I get in the zone while I'm driving. And then if there's no oncoming traffic, I'll go right through an intersection. And it's just because you don't want to stop and get ambushed. Right? right. And you're surveying the land and it's just, um, so yeah, so I had, I used to have on my refrigerator, uh, the tickets I would be, I would, I was set uh, when they caught me or those cameras systems caught me going through an inner or a red light. And essentially all I was doing was um, it was just always when I was zoned out, it, there was no traffic and I saw no other cars oncoming as I went through an intersection. So I just go right through. Um, and then one day I was, uh, had a friend following me to a restaurant where we we're going to stop at. And she just called me and she's like, what on earth are you doing? Um, I had to pull over. Cause I was like, Oh, she got caught in a red light. Okay. I'll pull over she would just tell me like, you just went right through a red light. Um, what are you doing? And so mm. to me, that's what PTSD was. Uh, yeah. Those were the two major forms of PS PTSD I had with that running the red light thing went on for years. Right. Um, so that that's what PTSD was to me. And I always thought PTSD was more of a blanket term uh, right. to cover up the real factors and uh, the real issues that guys have like TBI, um, you know, uh, traumatic brain injuries. Mm. Um, but to tell you the truth, I don't know what PTSD is as of now, because during the pandemic, uh, I had a former teammate take his life um, mm. and the family attributes it to PTSD. And this is something I've never had a conversation uh, with him about PTSD. In fact, to tell you the truth, since we got out, we've never even had one army conversation or one conversation based on what mm -hmm. it is we've 
did in the past. And so that kind of just threw me for a loop and completely changed my whole mindset on what PTSD is. And it's a lot more serious than I had initially thought. And so I'm struggling with that right now. I don't know exactly what it is. Um, but it's more serious than I had initially. Well, thought. it sounds like it's it's nuanced, and it sounds like it's different for everyone because everyone has uh, experienced that sort of fight or flight thing in a different way and is reacting in a different way. So it's hard to put a blanket connect. We just throw out an acronym, but there's real consequences and actions and uh, repercussions and people dealing with it in these different ways. That brings me to another question though, as you're saying that it's like, how does the, how do you feel just in your opinion, you know, how that, that the military or your particular branch, I guess, handles it? How do they deal with it? Uh, very poorly. So when we were in for sure, it, w- it was any sign of, so I think the NFL is the perfect analogy. Mm. Um, so in the military, you've got an A team and that's just team one. That is who is going to get the priority mission on every deployment. Mm. And typically with the training cycle, it's so intense um, in some of these line units that everybody's basically hovering right about 75% as far as uh, physical ability. You're either at hundred percent. Mm. And when you drop below 75%, you know, whatever sprained ankle, maybe just some bruises and whatnot from jumping out of airplanes um, or just all the running you do in a, in heavy rucking you do on a consistent basis. Um, when you drop below 75%, that's when there's an issue. That's when it's like, okay, you, you need to like, not there is no injured reserve, but you do need to move down to the B team. Um, mm. And so you got a lot of guys that essentially are avoiding or, or faking, you know, they're saying they're at hundred percent when they're really not. And um, it's just because of the dynamic of the A team, you don't want to break that up and you definitely don't want to move down to the B team. So, well, that's the culture. Um, and essentially let me get back to the NFL analogy. I think it's so similar to that because you've got guys that are destroying their bodies. Um, the military avoids the real issue. The real issue is, um, the traumatic brain injuries and stuff like that. Like as mm-hmm. part of the game, it's just, you've got these guys uh, running full force at each other, dropping their heads and impacting um, first point of contact is their skulls. Yeah. And so they attribute, they just make this term and call it CTE. Um, and they can come up with this whole plethora of things they're doing to avoid that. But the real issue is the game itself. And mm. you avoid that as the real issue because if you say the game it's is the actual money. issue, well, then there's no more game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then in the military itself, um, to, to go to sick call or to move down or to ask for help, all that is considered weakness. And there's just this culture of, no, we're going 100% all the time. And if you complain once, well, that's then there's a real issue. Maybe you just don't belong here. Maybe you need to be sent to another unit that has that handles more admin type stuff. Mm, so, yeah, that's like, I guess like in any kind of um, hyperbolic masculine society, it's like, you don't complain, you don't cry, you don't show any vulnerability. 
yeah, be yeah, burning then, out then that's you. <laughs> yeah, that's you being weak. That has nothing to do with the game itself or right. what you've been through. That's just a weakness. What military culture breeds. Yeah. The war itself is an issue. <laughs> We're like, war right. is not normal. And it's a human reaction to like an inhumane problem. Exactly. Mm. Wow. Damn. So let me ask you something about going back to uh, Afghanistan. Uh, we've been there for 20 years and they have like suddenly a lot of people are now able to see democracy women uh, sort of have certain rights that they probably didn't have before Absolutely. Um, if you're 19 you just never knew the taliban rule it's got to be like a needle off the record a total shock to the system for a lot of people who mostly saw the, the westernized thing right right so kind of feel like it's going to implode or there's going to be some sort of revolution or something. We'll, we'll see how tolerant the Taliban is. Uh, the, ta- the Taliban is obviously trying to change their persona or the way they are. I mean, they have cell phones and they're actually tweeting, um, mm. which was completely unacceptable back in 2001 and prior. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Taliban has learned. They have really shifted their mindset, especially to negotiate uh, with the U.S. and find that treaty uh, that was built. Mm. So we'll see moving forward how much of a tolerance uh, they actually have. Um, obviously, it's not going to be as open as it was a year ago. Mm. But um, I actually have a friend now who's a filmmaker, but he's there now and he's establishing contact with the Taliban itself. And the Taliban has agreed to support artists, this artist commune, in particular mm-hmm. in Jalalabad. Um, and wow. and uh, this artist commune and artist there, um, it's something that was going to be shut down uh, by the former Ghani government. Uh, the Ghani government had refused uh, support and funding to this artist community. And now the Taliban has agreed uh, to fund and support it. So we'll see how much of a general shift in thought like that continues. Mm. Um, so like lip service as opposed to uh, actual practicality, yes. like yeah. how it's executed. Well, probably right. executed is a bad word for Taliban. Yeah. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> but yeah. how it's yeah implemented. Yeah. Yeah. Some um, of their actions uh, reflect that they've learned quite a lot and uh, they're much more accepting of Western culture, but we'll see where all the chips land. And this is going to be a long process. Yeah. I know the power of young people now and how they, when they, when you show someone the flat screen, high def color TV, and then you go, pull it away and then give them black and white. You're like, uh, no, (laughs) I mean, metaphorically speaking, like that's going to be like, hold on, we can't go back to this. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so originally, initially right now, um, all of them as a whole in mass, uh, they definitely want out, but more and more they realize that isn't the reality yeah Mm, i I hope you are correct yeah and also the taliban is like there's they may be talking tough who knows i don't know anything about enough about it but i i saw that they killed a comedian oh shoot i wish i had his name i'm gonna edit in (laughs) (laughs) right um nazar muhammad he was like sort of a a guy that sort of made fun of the sort of like a, I guess like John Stewart or anybody who here would have done 
but they executed him. But some of the Taliban, half the Taliban was like, hey, we, we didn't really condone that. And half were like, this seems to be like, even within themselves, there is a bumping of heads of how we're going to proceed forward. Got it. So yeah. That doesn't... yeah, as big as that country is and disjointed as a lot of the tribes in different regions mm-hmm. are, I'm assuming, yeah, that's gonna, you're going to have a lot of that. From what you've experienced, what do you now think about the process of war and humanity? <laughs> well, if so, when any friend asks or someone asks me, um, even out here in LA, like some producer will, they know my background. So a lot of producers will reach out to me when their son is of age and they're talking about wanting to go to the military. And I always, don't encourage that. Um, I always try and talk them out of it. I give them stories that really make them think about what they're about to do. Mm. Uh, that kind of shifts more to the side of don't do it. But at the same time, um, I went to war a lot of times. Um, and I won't lie, it, it was beautiful to me. Um, I saw the best that humanity had to offer. I saw that in people. But I also saw the worst that humanity has to offer as well. Um, so I don't regret having done it. Um, I've seen the best in people, but because I've seen the worst and what people are capable of doing to other human beings, um, I think in the end, um, yeah, I absolutely think it's not worth it. Mm. Yeah. Especially, uh, I, I think so, you know, for years, even I thought, you know, people, I was in news articles and whatnot. And one word that they always attributed to me was unscathed or lucky. War will teach you a lot about a lot of things, especially a lot about yourself, things that you can harness and capitalize on and move forward as a better person in life. But especially after COVID, when a former teammate took his life and you're talking, this is years later, something that was unexpected and out of the blue. Yeah. I think ultimately what war will teach you a lot about yourself, but ultimately it will strip you of everything that you ever found dear and everything that you ever held dear to yourself. Wow. And so in the end, it was an amazing experience, but it's just not worth it. Wow. Whew. Yeah. I, when we go to these places or when we get involved in this thing, we look at us and them, you know, we, we start off, I'm sure in human intelligence, you have to sort of erase the us and them thing in order to connect. So absolutely, what are the similarities you saw in them and us? And Okay. Yeah. Good question. Um, so in Afghanistan, as much as I enjoyed and as much as, as many friendships as I established in Afghanistan, it never entered my mind. It, the place just seems so foreign. It, it just seems so prehistoric to me that I never really thought of them. This is going to sound horrible, but I never really thought of them as human. Um, and that sounds horrible, but I never saw them as a culture similar to ours. I just saw them as this it was like this dream state. It just mm. seemed like a dream. It was just so vastly different from us. But Iraq is what really threw me for a loop. That's where you're driving down a highway 
and it's reminding you of a trip to Disneyland when you were a child. Um, there's a lot of houses you're going to go into and you're going to see personalities that remind you of somebody that you grew up with. Um, mm. you're, it, it's not too far removed in a way at times to where you're going into a house and you're just thinking to yourself, this could have easily been in the United States. Um, mm. So it was, it was Iraq that was just a modern culture um, in a city. I know a lot of guys that just went out to the desert side and had a great time. Uh, but in urban combat in places like Fallujah, uh, Baghdad, uh, Mosul, even though it's different, it's still, you see the similarities in the human and you can place them, you can place yourself in their footsteps. Mm. So yeah, what was the question again? No, no, uh, you, I got you're, into an- you're answering it. I said you, you're saying the similarities. What yeah, similarities that, did you see in us and them? Right. And how did this part two to that is how did that change affect you then? It, it changed everything because now after you make the arrest, um, you're going in there and the person's mother is yelling at you and it reminds you of your grandmother. And mm. You just think to yourself, that's the exact way. I don't understand what she's saying because it's Arabic, but the way she, her mannerisms and the way she's yelling at me is the way my grandmother would yell at me when she got angry because I did something really stupid. Mm. And that's what uh, made war difficult. Yeah. Wow. Whew. Well, <laughs> Ramon, thank you so much for, your, for being candid, man and uh absolutely man. breaking it down for me and, that, and i'm sure you've got like a million and one stories we're just only scratching the surface but uh but this gives us a little bit of an insight to the human side of all that i didn't want to hear it from an anchor person i wanted to hear it from you know what i mean yeah man absolutely yeah there. thanks for having me and then uh and it's one of those things too um i think i've had a lot bottled up so it's about yeah so thank you for having me on it's one of those things i realized especially during the pandemic i just yeah. there's things i just i should be talking about that um i never have yeah it's not just for us learning but it's also like uh you know you don't get this in-depth level of being able to release it you know so that you don't uh you know just walk around <laughs> it's just exactly you know right you know what i mean and then we and we can we can understand you more and then you understand it it's it is kind of normal to feel the way you feel. It's not, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Because it was an extreme situation. But that being said, we got to go have coffee. I got to buy you something to eat. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah, I was going to say, so uh, <laughs> we'll enjoy, then we'll oh. pay $12 for a latte. I mean, anytime. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. All right. Stop, drop, and roll. Thank you guys for listening. Later. Say bye, Ramon. Thank you, Raul. Thank you, Raul. And thank, <laughs> uh, I hope this is insightful to someone out there. Thank you. <laughs> Peace.